are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything's possible. Live from a very confusing weather pattern, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Gertz. I'm Chris Moore. And I'm Sam Mulberry. And guys, I would refer to this weather pattern as hate snow. It's hate <laughs> snowing out. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to call this. It's just like periodically throughout this day, we're recording on Thursday, April 9th in the great state of Minnesota and the Twin City. We just got these kind of like thunder showers. The mm-hmm. snow showers just uh, pop up and they're gone. It's bright and sunny right now. It's a little crisp, but uh, it's, it's been a very odd day out my window here from my home office at the kitchen table of the Garrett's household. Uh, I was going <laughs> to ask Chris Moore, what, can you describe your office situation right now? I would be delighted to. So uh, our uh, desktop computer, which I'm uh, podcasting from right now, is in our spare room, which we use as a guest room. Which mm-hmm. is, there's a bed behind me, but my daughter and son decided that it was too plain to just have a bed behind me for my backdrop so they have arranged a small army of stuffed animals behind me um to kind of layer over my shoulder at whoever i'm talking to so it's either comforting or very disturbing depending on your view of stuffed animals and sam mulberry can you give us a report from the campus of bethel university you are essential works you are allowed to be there (laughs) that's right it's real quiet here it's it's i saw my first human being today uh, but yeah, <laughs> did you did you regard each other kind of warily and circle yeah, each other at a distance? We did. We we kept a distance. It's sort yeah. of like working on a space station. Like I have yeah. distance communication with people, but I feel like I'm on the International Space Station. So a big part of my last two days have been venturing out for the. I have not really been out except to take walks for about three weeks. But we mm. needed to go to Costco and Target, and I was drafted to do it. My mom had sent us a couple of nice masks that she had made in Virginia. That's lovely. And yeah, as I I like I felt okay. Okay about our precautions, but it was a very odd experience. Um, there is, by the way, there was tons of toilet paper at the Maplewood Costco. If anyone needs to know that, like there was almost too much. It was Hold on, I'll be, I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. So, so I haven't got a lot of like academic work done because those were pretty intensive experiences. Um, okay. But that's not really what we're here to talk about, is it? I'm kind of wasting our time here and keeping that's Sam from meeting. It's all good. Uh, no, this is the 252, which is a podcast we've been doing for about a year and a half-ish now, but mm-hmm. it's also part of the online version of our course at Bethel University, History and Politics of Sports. And so let, let's start segment one here by actually getting a field report from something we did in that class. Uh, Chris, I'll let you get started because this is really your brainchild. We've been doing a simulation of something and right. we thought we just let's remind people what the simulation was and then we can actually report on its outcome. Yeah, it's a it's a brainchild, but it's also one that's it's transmogrified quite a bit just in the last couple of weeks. We had initially thought that we would take our seventy odd students uh, in our class, break them up into two essentially um, synonymous cities, and have them represent a city council, mm-hmm. two different uh, major uh, professional sports franchises, an MLS soccer team and an NFL team, and then uh, various citizens of those cities, and have them. Uh, basically meet before the city council and try to propose uh, new stadiums. The MLS team would be sort of a um, 
a new uh, a new franchise, and the NFL team was an was an extant franchise that was seeking a new stadium, uh, with different sort of financial incentives and different sort of costs. Um, we gave roles uh, across the political spectrum to the members of the city council. We gave roles to various citizens uh, representing different kinds of business interests or uh, concerns within the community. And that was all supposed to take place live and face to face in a real rooms with a real city council meeting and a real gavel of some kind. Um, and that you had a gavel? Up, I didn't realize. Oh, I had a, I had two gavels. I, I don't doubt that. Um, I have a backup gavel. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so because we had to move everything online, we tried to replicate as much of that as we could. But there was some, you know, there's some hiccups and some some things got lost in translation. But we still had the basic the basic format of that simulation carry out, which is. Um, two different uh, uh, franchisees uh, took brought uh, proposals to a city council. There was a reaction time where uh, members of the uh, public got to ask questions and comment on those proposals and ultimately write op-eds lobbying the city council. And then finally the city council voted and issued press releases explaining their votes. So before I get to the results, can I just say, uh, I, at the beginning of the week, I was probably kind of skeptical that this would all work. <laughs> and I, I feel I feel bad about some of the things I said in retrospect, because I, I tend towards being nervous and worst case scenario. I actually think it worked pretty well. It, I think it accomplished most of what we wanted to do. And just glancing at the student survey, they, they seem mostly okay with how this went. The biggest kind of change would be that I saw a student saying was, I wish we could have done this face to face. Oh, yeah. 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 So I mean, all that being said, Chris, since this, this was yours, and I, I think it was one of the things I was really excited about doing when we, we dreamed up the course. I actually think it worked all right and we'll have to decide whether we do the second simulation. Right. I, I actually I want to say like this actually probably accomplished most of what we wanted to do. Yeah, I think I think uh, it one of the reasons why we do simulations is because it gives us a chance to act out um, the real uh, inter intricacies of a, of a public policy problem in a different way than just writing um, a case study or which we did, which, is, which we also had them do or uh, writing a, a, like a policy analysis kind of type paper, right? It allows you to sort of feel a role in that. And hopefully that gives a, a level of stakes and a level of interest that might not otherwise happen. And hopefully it increases retention uh, of information too. Right. Well, so, and I think it's a nice contrast because there have been moments in this class where it really feels like a history course, right? Like the week back from spring break, it was, okay, this is the African-American history of sports, right? Yes. So this is yep. also a political science course, and we'll do some international relations pretty soon. But I think yes, kind of the main theme was public policy, how that's made, how that's debated, how that's contested. And so this seemed like tailor-made for that. I mean, as the yep. history professor in the relationship, I was really glad that that got to be a part of it that this wasn't just a history course. Yes. Okay. Well, I think we keep, so, kept people in suspense long enough. I intentionally did not look at your city council votes in your Google folder. So I have no idea how your, yours went. So I'm, I, can't, I can't wait any longer. Chris, what happened in your version of the fictional city of Camelot? Okay. So uh, there are two proposals before the city, fictional city of Camelot. And one was, do we give the NFL franchise, the Camelot Knights, uh, a new NFL stadium, and that cost um, a pretty penny. Mm -hmm. um, that proposal, in my uh, set version of the city, passed six to one. 
Wow. With even the libertarian candidate voting in favor of it, um, so uh, even the uh, even the, the the candidate who was given the role of or the or the city council member given the role of being the most sort of skeptical of government spending and government intervention, uh, thought that this ma made a compelling case that actually wow. this was in the public interest for the public and because most of the public had expressed that or had, had validated the presence of an NFL team in the city, that this meant the city should sort of bend over backwards to maintain this in the, in the public interest. So the Knights, you, the NFL Knights get a new stadium. Okay. Can I ask, were you surprised by that given the way Very. the conversation had gone and how the proposals were framed? Yeah. Now I will say that the NFL team in my, uh, um, in, in my city made a very strong case, made a very nice proposal and covered a lot of their bases. So um, they presented some pretty compelling information. So I'm not completely surprised that they, um, that they got some votes because of that. Okay. Um, but here's where the real drama comes in. So at the same time that the NFL uh, franchise was lobbying for a new stadium, uh, the MLS was lobbying to put a new uh, MLS team in Camelot as well. And they were proposed to be the Camelot Merlins uh, because <laughs> I'm cheesy like that. And um, this vote was, you ready for this little drama? Uh, how much were they that. asking for, by the way? They were how asking for they? significantly less right. than the NFL team. So this was a smaller stadium, smaller footprint, uh, less cost, over less time as well. So mm -hmm. the city was on the hook for, for less money for a shorter period of time. Um, but uh, uh, the Merlins got uh, three yes votes and three no votes and one abstention. What? Yes. How could you abstain? The person okay. specifically said, I will not vote on this. They, they, gave, they gave a good reason. They wrote it out. They explained that, uh, that, the, the, that both the opponents and proponents of an MLS stadium had not meaningfully answered questions about the financial costs and outlay of the stadium, huh. and they declined to vote until some of their questions were answered. So the way I'm recording that, and I'm playing a little fast and loose with the simulation rules here, mm -hmm. is I recorded that not only as an abstention, but also as a motion to table <laughs> on the part of that uh, that member of the uh, um, of the city council, so the Merlins are deferring their vote until some more information can be can be obtained. So right now, the Merlin Stadium hangs in the balance. Now the simulation's over; we're not going to make right. them go back and provide more information. But so kind uh, of in purgatory. At this a point. No, there's a no decision on the Merlin Stadium at this point. Wow! Yeah, I bet that tickled your fans. You are also Bethel's kind of resident parliamentarian. So I bet well, you're pretty happy to do yeah, that. Yeah, I inadvertently stumbled into that role, and I love this so much. Yeah. So, Okay, well, um, I don't know if you'd look to see what happened with mine, but I, I will did. say neither outcome was reproduced because in my half of the simulation, so exactly the same roles, exactly the same stakes, uh, seven city council members with the same kind of political distribution, one libertarian, two Democrats, two Republicans, two independents, both proposals failed three to four. Mm. So here's what's interesting as I try to think about this. Um, the libertarian in this case voted against both, which is what I would have expected exactly. um, for the reasons you would kind of want to see a libertarian argue against it. Mm -hmm. um, here's how I think, if I got it right, here's how it broke down. The two Democrats both voted for the MLS stadium against the NFL stadium. Interesting. To and not necessarily because they were Democrat, or at least I think we should talk about this. But the way they framed it, it wasn't necessarily that it reflected Democratic partisan interests, it was more they just felt like the MLS case was stronger, it was a smaller ask, it right. promised more immediate benefits, uh, and a couple other things I'll get back to. 
both independents voted for the NFL stadium, and then the Republicans split. One voted for MLS, one voted for NFL. But here's the thing. No one voted for both. Interesting. Neither thought, I mean, actually, generally, they thought the proposals were pretty strong, but they didn't mm -hmm. think they could afford spending on both. And so it came down to which one are you going to favor? And in the end, neither got enough votes. Now, what I don't know is how much was going on behind the scenes. Uh, I had suggested they talk to each other. So I don't know if they had kind of rigged their voting as a team, because these were a, a group that works together. Um, to say, we just don't want either stadium, we're going to divvy up our votes this way. But I mean, they had, they had compelling reasons for each of their yeah. votes. Um, Absolutely. One thing that struck me with the two Republicans, I want to give them credit, they took really seriously the idea that they were supposed to be uh, people of fiscal discipline. They wanted lower taxes. And so uh, the one Republican who voted for the MLS thought that the MLS group did a better job framing how funding would work. Mm. And they didn't think the NFL team did a very good job. The Republican who voted for the NFL stadium acknowledged that and then came up with her own kind of funding proposal of how there'd be oh. kind of these uh, taxes on like uh, on alcohol, hotels, things like that. And so she had, she had said, I'm not going to vote for this unless I can come up with a way to fund it that doesn't raise taxes for consumer for for individuals. And, right, and she right. did. And so she voted for it. Oh, um, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the last thing that struck me is the MLS votes basically said, um, they liked that they thought it would be more benefits for more people. One issue that came up pretty quick on Monday was the, the MLS proposal. That team had done a good job framing like uh, NFL stadiums are these monstrous things that cost way more than they're budgeted for. And they're only for eight home games. MLS stadiums are much smaller projects that benefit more people. There are more games. It's a multi-purpose kind of stadium. Um, but the MLS, MLS voters seem to think the NFL would still stay. I think all of them yeah. said, we think there will be renovations done. We're going to call the bluff of the NFL, in essence, and say, you're not going to move our team. Or if you are, it's going to take a while. We'll still get some benefit for a few years. So that, that was just a few things that struck me. But it is, it's fascinating that in these two parallel simulations, we get such divergent results, in a sense. And I, maybe that's typical. You've, you do this a lot more than I do, Chris. Yeah, I, yes. And I, I would say from that perspective, now mostly what I'm doing simulations on is international relations. I don't often run city council simulations. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, these are, and, and in some ways, this sort of mirrors, I mean, this is a very small sample, so we shouldn't read too much into this. But um, new funding proposals don't have a fantastic track record of passage in cities. Uh, we, just had our, we also had our students write case studies about actual um, public policy decisions within various American cities about mm -hmm. funding stadiums, and a significant number of those proposals fail. So yeah. this is not this is not unusual. Um, this this uh, basically of the four proposals across our two cities, three of them failed and, and one passed. Right, right. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the case study. Like, I think one thing that worked really well was, um, I mean, the case studies came up a lot. Like the, the best of the comments and questions, and then in a couple of the op-eds, and even at least one or two of the city council release, people like reference things they had come across during the case studies right. as a way to buttress their argument. So like, um, I mean, I think like one comment I did see in the survey was like, should this be a real life scenario or a fictionalized thing like mm -hmm. this Camelot you came up with? But I think people did pretty well to try to translate the actual recent historical real life cases and say, how would this play out in this scenario we've been given? So, yes, I guess that's my long winded way of saying good job, students, for trying to figure out how to play your roles, drawing on the information you have, but then trying to put it into the simulation that we had set up for you. Nice job, folks. This was fun. 
It was. So uh, we, I mean, the, the survey is still open, so I don't want to um, say what we're going to do with it, but we do appreciate getting that feedback for a lot of reasons. We're going to kind of chew on that for a while and then we'll decide what to do. We have planned a second simulation around the Olympics. And so we'll make a call pretty soon about whether we're doing that or, or something else, but uh, it was fun to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking, Chris, of, of large sporting venues, right now they're all <laughs> sitting unoccupied, unused. Right. Although I, I saw at least a couple of stadiums are being used for other kinds of things, like uh, I don't know if they're field hospitals or uh, supply depots right now. Um, but you, you, as the Chatham Center in, in, in New York, right? That's what you're referring to? Well, no, I actually saw, uh, oh, I wish I could, it was a college football stadium was being used somewhere. Or something oh, right now. Okay. I just can't I can't remember. Um but okay. over the last couple of podcasts, we, we've been trying to think through what does coronavirus mean for sports right now, the mm -hmm. near future, the, the distant future. And you had an interesting question you want us to talk about here. Yeah, so um, I, I wrote this um maybe not in the most clear way. So I'll explain what I mean by this. I, I was listening to a uh, because uh this is my new daily viewing, is the president's daily briefing on coronavirus, and I was listening to uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is an epidemiologist who is a point person for the White House on the coronavirus response. And one of the things that Fauci said, Fauci has, has, um, has been a voice of science and a voice of, of, uh, of, of medical uh, reason. Uh, but he's also said a couple of things which have been, um, which have caused a little bit of a stir. And one of the things he said was that he thinks that handshaking should end as a social institution forever. That we uh, should never go back to hand shaking hands. That that's just, it's just bad public health to be doing that. And, um, the, 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 you know, shaking hands is just a social convention. There's no reason why we couldn't bump elbows instead and have it be just as meaningful or, you know, polite head nods or, you know, a, a sort of a waist bow or something like that. Um, but what got me thinking about is much like shaking hands, there's lots of things we just do at mass sporting events, right? Um, we do the wave. Uh, we eat certain kinds of foods. Uh, we say certain kinds of things, sometimes in joy, sometimes in anger, right? Um, I don't normally high five strangers on the street, but at a football game, I will high five strangers in the event of a touchdown, right? Um, huh. And we also have some recent history, which shows us that those liturgies can change. In the wake of 9-11, with the increase of security at mass sporting events, things change with about tailgating about where you can tailgate how you know what you can do in respect respect to that how you enter stadiums the sort of the metal detector those kinds of things and we've all just kind of adopted those things as the new normal so this is me getting sort of thinking um, sort of a little bit prospectively about what things may change in the future because of coronavirus will we see permanent changes to how we celebrate mass sporting events huh that is a great question. I've been thinking about, so I've been thinking to step back from sports for just a sec. I've been thinking a little bit about, do we have a history of how pandemics, epidemics do change behavior historically? Mm -hmm. So like uh, um, in my own blog, I shared something from Smithsonian Magazine, which is a pretty good kind of accessible general interest history magazine. And they had asked like, how would this happen in the past? And so one example they gave is then the 1890s, uh, tuberculosis was spreading in New York City. And there, the city health department actually launched what they called a war on tuberculosis, and they, they encourage people, for example, to stop sharing cups and bottles. Oh. And uh, there also, this is the point when American states finally passed ordinances banning spitting inside public buildings. Oh, I wondered if you were going to go here. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Which, yeah. of course, now, like, if we saw, I mean, we do see people do this every once in a while, but it's it's uh, just a little bit aberrant, right? It's untoward yeah, for most it's of it. But like, 
it was entirely entirely permissible it was prevalent right i mean even 100 years ago but this was a now to us very logical kind of change mm -hmm. so I, like what you're suggesting makes total sense to me and i'm glad you thought about 9-11 um boy I, I don't even i mean like one thing it makes me wonder about is how we so you mentioned security coming out of 9-11 yeah. I wonder, like, how much social distancing will kind of linger as you make your way into these facilities, and then even like, do we rethink seating as a result of it? Like, I mean, right. they're kind of financial interest to encourage uh, not just cramming a bunch of people together, but having luxury suites, right? I'm not right. sure I can ever imagine going purely to stadiums full of luxury suites, kind of walled but off from each other. Could but you could you imagine a situation like an airplane where? There's box seats, that's first class, but there's also economy plus where there's seats somewhere in the stadium that are a little bit more spaced out, a little bit more, um, a little bit more leg room. And then there's the economy seats, which are kind of like what we have right now. Would yeah. you pay more? Would people pay more for economy plus sports seating? Huh? I, yeah. Why not? I mean, we're already doing things like movie theaters, right? I mean, like, as yeah. a way to monetize that kind of activity, they've been coming up with these amenities, more spacious. Like we're kind of accustomed to that thing, getting us off our couch at home. Mm -hmm. Could Stadia try the same sort of thing? Um, and then the other way is on the outside of the stadium, would there be um, things to discourage gatherings of groups like I mean, tailgating, for example? Right. Or like Sam, I was actually thinking of our experience going to a premiership game at West Ham in Eastern London, um, it just kind of like the crush of people entering that not very large stadium. I'm trying to imagine doing that again in the wake of COVID-19 or would they try to space that out somehow? Yeah, I'm trying, to th I'm trying to think how they would do that. I mean, it's one thing for people to uh, elect to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't, I mean, because the hard part is where, where that crush happens the most is when you're leaving. And every right. and 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 everybody's incentivized in leaving to get out. So, like, you think people would would linger longer, so they uh, they had more space as they left. I mean, that would be like that's a practice. I would feel I feel like it would be hard to imagine because there is this sense, you know, with the sporting event of like, oh, I want to beat the traffic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, will we see the flip, which is I'm going to hang out so that I don't have traffic? I don't know. Well, what, is, what if stadiums instituted a staggered dismissal? Yeah. Um, Please, everyone in the upper deck, upper bowl, please stay for the next 15 minutes. We will show highlights and we'll have some kind of entertainment. Everybody in the lower deck, please exit now so we can space this out. Well, that's interesting. Or Sam's where it used the word traffic makes me want, a lot of stadiums now are integrated with mass transit systems. Like you mm -hmm. go to US Bank Stadium or Target Field, and I mean, they want you to go there using light rail or buses. We, will we now actually see a push back towards, well, we don't want to crowd everyone together into these overstuffed uh, train compartments and buses. Mm. That, I mean, like there are competing interests there. Cities have no desire to encourage more people to drive their cars downtown and try to find parking. But will people right. want to do that now? Is a, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting the interesting question that all this brings up is um, in, in the next wave of stadium remodels and city infrastructure, will this affect how we think about how people live? Yeah. 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 Well, and it could. I mean, there's, there, I mean, one thing that did come up in our simulation is a lot of these projects are tied to redevelopment efforts. And so if, around U.S. Bank Stadium, a lot of that is still aspirational or it's in the works. And then I don't know how much those plans could change. Because um, right now, I think they're attached to a mix of parks shopping but also like high density um living spaces 
right now is very typical of Minneapolis. Um, I, I, this is a great question. I kind of like to hear listeners slash students respond to this. So uh, if they do have ideas of what this would mean, how would they tell us, uh, you two? I always forget the email address for this. You can uh, you email can, us. Oh, go ahead, Sam. Uh, you can email us at uh, channel3900 at gmail.com. And students, of course, you know our email addresses. So that's easy enough for you to, to get a hold of us. Well, I had one other question, but I think I'm going to punt on this because I, I don't think it's going to be resolved any time in the next week or two. But uh, something that came up on our Moodle site, we've got kind of a COVID discussion board. We've started mm -hmm. to hear some uh, far-fetched or maybe not so far-fetched plans for how spring and summer pro sports leagues could restart and place at least some number of meaningful games yet this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think MLB and NHL have been uh, a couple of the first to propose some things. NBA, I think we maybe even talked about uh, last time or a week or two ago. Uh, so why don't we wrap up the first segment because we need to save some time. In segment two, students are going to perk up in interest because we're going to talk through their midterm exam and especially talk through one of the two take-home essays. This is another kind of simulation or it's at least a hypothetical example involving our university, Bethel University. Back after a break. This week in sports history. Brooklyn, New York, April 9th, 1947. Just six days before Dodger infielder Jackie Robinson makes baseball history, Dodgers manager Leo DeRocher is suspended for the entire 1947 season. Why? Commissioner Happy Chandler was disturbed by DeRocher's numerous connections to gamblers. Plus, Brooklyn's Catholic leaders were appalled that Dodgers manager had left his wife and married a divorced actress. Athens, Greece, April 10, 1896. Greek runner Spiridon Luis wins the first modern marathon, finishing in just shy of three hours. He becomes a national hero of the first modern Olympics, with the future king of Greece, Constantine, joining him for the last lap. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, April 11, 1989. Ron Hextall of the Flyers becomes the first NHL goalie to score a goal in a playoff game, clearing the puck into Washington's empty net to clinch an 8-5 win over the Capitals. Augusta, Georgia, April 12, 1987. Augusta native Larry Mize wins the Masters in a playoff over Greg Norman. Mize's only major championship, it came down to a 140-foot chip shot for birdie. So Mize and Norman now come to the 11th green. This is the second hole, sudden death playoff of this year's Masters. He may be back far enough that he can pitch the ball in the air and hopefully land just on the putting surface. listening to This Week in Sports History. Yeah. 
Welcome back to this week's episode of The 252. This is Chris Garrett, joined again by Chris Moore and Sam Mulberry. Uh, at this point, students, you especially want to pay attention because we are going to talk through your midterm exam. Now, other listeners, you don't want to stop paying attention because I think it's actually going to be an interesting conversation as we get to the second part of this assignment. But for students, you'll find this on your Moodle page. We're making this available as we drop our podcast for this week. And you basically, this is what you can do from here until the other side of Easter. Uh, for your midterm in History of Political Science 252L, you're going to submit two take-home essays. What you're going to do is write a single document, PDF, Word doc, whatever it is, upload it to a single Dropbox at Moodle. But it should have two distinct take-home essays that we'll read through. You need to turn this in by the end of the day on Wednesday, April 15th. So if you want to start this now, that's great. If you want to wait till after the Easter break, that's fine. You should have plenty of time. Each essay should be no more than 750 words in length. Each will be worth, uh, we're going to say 40 points. This all winds up to be about 15% of your grade for the course. So we're going to talk through these two essays. We're going to linger more on the second one. But Chris, do you want to read through what essay number one should do? Sure. Essay number one is subtitled Sports in American Society. And here's the prompt. Describe a significant way that a change in sports has led or driven larger changes in American society or culture over the course of the 20th century. How did the sport change influence societal change? Then, describe a second case where changes in sport have lagged behind societal or cultural changes. What caused the lag? You should discuss at least two different sports and support your arguments with specific evidence from readings or group projects in addition to lectures and podcasts. So, Chris, I, I mean, I hope this probably prompts some pretty quick thoughts from students. We've talked a lot about this over the first Absolutely. two months in the course. I don't know how much we even want to talk about it here. Uh, I mean, we just talked about race, African-American history, uh, right. and, and other uh, um, persons of color, their experience. Um, and race, and is great, race is a great example because there have been places where sports has sort of uh, presaged uh, broader societal change when it comes mm -hmm. to race, and other places where sport has lagged behind societal change when it comes to uh, um, pr progression on racial issues. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of examples here, uh, but it doesn't have to be race. We can be talking about gender, we can talk about class arguments, socioeconomic arguments, lots of other kinds of societal changes too. Yeah, so maybe students, you just want to kind of look back through your notes from lectures, flip back through Davies, your textbook, uh, maybe think back through the project you did in February. But we do want to underscore here that you know, what we're really looking at like you can do something if all you do is lecture notes, like you'll get the, a good start. But like, we really do want to see you drawing on other kinds of evidence here from the readings you've done, from group projects, either that you gave or that you heard someone else do, uh, from maybe our podcast conversation last week about, about race. Um, and so that's something, kind of the synthesis element here. Can you draw together a bunch of different things to answer this question? Okay. So right, that's First essay, essay number two, we're calling this a Bethel hypothetical. And, and this one I'm looking forward to talking through. This was a great idea that Chris Moore had. So let me read through it, then we'll have some discussion. Imagine, I always love when midterms start this way. Imagine <laughs> that a wealthy donor has pledged to give Bethel University $10 million. And I'm not sure we've ever actually got that big a gift, but this does no. happen. Imagine mm -hmm. we've got $10 million from a wealthy donor, but only if Bethel's athletics program moves from Division Three to Division One of the NCAA. If you were advising President-elect Ross Allen, who's starting on July 1st, would you recommend accepting this $10 million gift under that condition that we have to go from D3 to D1 of the NCAA? Why or why not? And as you answer that, as you make your recommendation, essentially, uh, what costs and benefits would such a move entail? 
is D1 Sports consistent with Bethel's mission as a Christian institution, as a liberal arts college? In your answer, students, you should draw on this discussion we're about to have. So we're going to feed you some ideas in just a sec. You should also read chapter 11 in your textbook, which is called The Big Business of College Sports. And then we also gave you three shorter online articles to choose from that we'll probably talk about here on the podcast in a sec. So I'll just hold off on those, but they're linked on Moodle for you to, to peruse. So, um, Chris, I'll let you get started here because this was your idea and I think a really good one because I, I can start to imagine some themes we've already talked about coming into play here, but also this moves us into some other things that we've certainly talked about in this podcast in, uh, in past episodes. Maybe are newer to students, or maybe they're things mm -hmm. they're already thinking about. Again, 60% of our students are varsity athletes. Most of the others have done something with sports before. Um, well, what's one thing students should be thinking about as they hear this question and think about their response to it? Well, what I want them to say first off is um, it's okay to have a visceral reaction to this question. Mm -hmm. um, you might immediately imagine visions of Bethel having... Um, you know, a, a, a 65,000 seat stadium um, and uh, all the trappings that go along with division one sports. Uh, but at the same time, as soon as that, as soon as that clears, you need to have a sober conversation about what does that mean for such an institution as ours? Um, what would it mean to be the second D one program uh, in uh, well, <laughs> second or third, depending on what happens with St. Thomas um, in, uh, in the twin cities. Um, and what would it, uh, what would it, how did it change our institution? And then what is it about Bethel as a division three school? Um, and what is it, what is the role of college sports and college athletics at, uh, at Bethel? You, you're right, Chris, 60% uh, of our students are varsity athletes, but if we were a division one school, would that be the case? Right. I had a conversation, but I actually went to the reception for our president-elect and I was staying there waiting. And I talked with one of our business professors is the faculty athletic representative. So there's a, our conference has a meeting of these faculty. Uh, and, and Bruce, I asked him this question because we were noodling with it. I kind of asked him, like, well, how many of our athletes would be able to play D1 sports? And he didn't really know. Like, so he didn't have a good percentage, but it was clear it would be vastly lower. Right. Like, <laughs> he, like I could see him mentally think through the roster. like there are players that have actually transferred from the University of Minnesota or from other Division One or Division Two scholarship division schools because they want the D3 experience, right? Right. But they could clearly play at that level. But a lot of our student athletes would not be able to compete at a Division One level. It would be a different kind of recruiting right. for us, certainly, than what we do now. Um, to give you, I mean, if, if it's hard to imagine students, maybe let's talk about the second article we have linked on Moodle from the Star Tribune just a couple months, three months ago in January. This is by a really good reporter and columnist at the Strip named Rachel Blount, who's come to Bethel a couple of times to talk to our journalism students. And so she talked about what this would mean for one of our peer institutions, University of St. Thomas, which is, uh, if you're not from the Twin Cities, St. Thomas is a diocesan Catholic university. It's just down Snelling Avenue. Uh, it's longtime competitor of the Bethel Royals in Division Three. But our conference, the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, voted to boot St. Thomas because of competitive imbalance. St. Thomas's football team was running up the score on a few of the smaller schools. And so uh, there's kind of a transitional period. I think St. Thomas still competes the MIAC through next spring, if I remember right. That's correct. And so it has to decide what it wants to do. And um, it, it's interesting options. There are a couple of other D3 conference. There was some talk it might join the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. There, there's a Division II conference that some Minnesota schools are part of. But instead, St. Thomas has tried to jump to a Division I conference. I think it's called the Horizon League. Mm -hmm. 
But to do that, it needs to get special permission from the NCAA because it is skipping levels. This is not how the process is supposed to work. And so it's a little unclear this, if this will happen, but it certainly involves some costs. So in Blount's article, she talked to the athletic director at I think North Dakota State University, which made this move about 15 years ago. They were in division two and they moved up to division one. Right. Um, so they're, they're not in a power conference, but they are division one. And their AD said that when he came about four years before the move in 2001, their budget was about $5 million for the entire athletic department. By the time they entered division one, it was 9 million. And about four years after that, so by like 2010, it was $15 million, three times what it mm -hmm. had been. And now it's $25 million. Wow. It's so five times what it was. And St. Thomas, as far as Blanc could tell, is about $5 million. That's their reported expenses for athletics right now. So, you know, so they're arguing on the exactly. same track. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So that, that would be one thing to think about. $10 million would help get you there. Right. But that doesn't even include like capital improvements. Right. We, we would not be able to do Division One football in Royal Stadium or D1 no. baseball in Hargis Field. No. So there are some other things that would have to happen to make this possible. So that, that, Certainly, now that you've done this for stadiums, it's a different way to think about the finances of sports. But of course, there are other kinds of uh, you know, revenues that come in from Division One sports too. And we want people, the students, to wrestle with it not just at a pure pragmatic or collegiate financing level, but also right. as uh, as a Christian institution. Uh, there are a couple of different uh, visions for what the role of athletics at uh, as a Christian, as an individual, but also as part of Christian institutions. We've explored some of those in the class, and we wanted to put those on display here with uh, with a with a higher education institution as well. Uh, Bethel's taken one kind of route, remaining a Division three institution at least uh, um, for the time being, um, and uh, Liberty has taken a very different kind of approach to what it means to be a Christian institution in college athletics. Yeah, so we linked an article from a reporter out in Utah named Ethan Bauer, who writes for the Deseret News in Salt Lake City. So what prompted this is that Liberty University, which has been making this jump to Division One, even at the level of football, they're an independent right now, uh, played a game against Brigham Young University, the Mormon school in Utah, which is maybe the most one of the most successful examples of this. You know, you think about uh, explicitly Christian schools that play Division One sports. Notre Dame comes to mind. And Liberty often pegs itself as we want to be the Protestant or the evangelical Notre Dame. Right? In a sense, they also want to be the Protestant BYU, you know, a place mm -hmm. where uh, the religious mission, the religious identity is strongly imprinted on everything on campus. But they also are trying to compete at the highest level of NCAA um, um, sports. And so the meeting between those two is a, kind of a moment to check in on that. And so uh, Ethan ended up reporting. Um, and so you'll, you'll find that I'm actually quoted in that, but he also talked about St. Thomas. He talked to St. Thomas's football coach, Glenn Caruso, and he talked about why Liberty was doing this, why Jerry Falwell Jr., their president, sought to do this, and his dad had talked about this before, uh, but also some of the problems inherited in that. He asked some questions about, is this actually appropriate for a religious institution? Do you have to make some compromises to your mission and your values in order to do this. I can't remember if he talked about Baylor University, which is maybe another example. That's a Baptist yes, university exactly. in Texas. Um, the athletic director at Liberty used to be the athletic director at Baylor, but was fired because of a sexual assault scandal that's still being worked out. But there were rapes uh, involving athletes and uh, women in the student body. Uh, there were the question of how much the coaches, the athletic directors were um, looking away from this, turning a blind eye right. to it. Right. 
Right, and that that sparked some really intense conversations about the Christian identity of Baylor. It led to the downfall of their president and a, a new replacement. So that that's another kind of thing out there. If you want another kind of analog, how does Baylor do this, and what why has that been difficult? Um, and then finally, I mean, the other thing because we're having you read chapter eleven. Um, a couple of you have even mentioned this in assignments along the way. You're aware that there is some roiling debates in the NCAA about the way that uh, student labor is being used and compensated, right? And, and podcast right. listeners, we've talked about this often on the 252, but for students, uh, you know, we've talked about labor, right? What is appropriate compensation for workers who are athletes? Uh, how much say should they have in their conditions of employment? Should they be able to collectively bargain, go on strike, have a union of some sort? Well, um, Chris, I mean, student athletes are in a very weird position from the perspective of labor history and labor policy. Um, like, what are some issues there students could talk about? Yeah, so um, by virtue of being a Division three institution right now, we're sort of keeping, we're queuing much closer to the classic understanding of, of amateurism, right? right. Um, students do not receive scholarships for their athletic participation. They participate on a volunteer basis. Um, and uh, the school reaps very little profit from their from their athletic exploits. It's very different at Division One, where the schools often make a great deal of money. In fact, if you saw in the uh, Star Trip um, just this a couple of days ago, they were talking about the potential financial hit of the coronavirus for the University of Minnesota, mm -hmm. and a significant chunk of the financial hit that they're prognosticating is lost ticket sales uh, for things like football if the, if the um, sheltering in place goes into the fall. And so uh, that's not something that Bethel needs to deal with. We're not making money off of our football program the way the University of Minnesota is. But we would, uh, in theory, if we became a Division I institution. Mm -hmm. And that means that labor becomes a much bigger issue uh, at the Division I level for exactly the reasons that Chris mentions. But it's not just labor for labor's sake. Labor issues are a big part of it. But it's also um, a racial issue as well, uh, predominantly and especially in high-profile and high-lucrative sports. Um, African-Americans predominate um, in, in sports like football and basketball, which are the two biggest money makers for the NCAA. And um, these colleges that they play for are predominantly white colleges often. And Jamel Hill has written a really interesting provocative piece uh, back in October uh, 2019 in The Atlantic, uh, arguing for the case that black athletes need to consciously leave uh, white, uh, predominantly white uh, higher educational institutions. Right. And she suggested instead, she, I mean, she kind of speculated, what, what if uh, a group of five recruits decided in basketball or football to go to what's called an HBCU, a historically black college or university, which much like other private colleges, but with its own unique challenges, they're struggling, right? I mean, so in Absolutely. order to help those really important institutions and then to you know make a point of not simply giving this uh, lucrative uh, labor to white colleges, she talked about Duke particularly, yeah. Maybe that's what it takes. So, I mean, there, there are so many different directions you can go here. And of course, I mean, as we've said, th this is personal for many of you. I mean, like, I don't think that should be all you write about here, but you, you might want to think, what would this mean for you? Uh, how would this change your experience of Bethel for better or for worse? Um, but I, I love this as a way to exit uh, the first two quarters of the class. As we've thought about the history of sports in American society and the evolution of sports, as we've talked about race, and class and labor and gender, like we keep flirting with the college experience. And now here's a place to really bring it home and connect it to students' experience of Bethel, 
right? Exactly. So I, I can't wait to read these these essays. I can't read to, wait to read both, but especially this yeah. one. It's very hard to know. I'm, I'm not sure how to predict how students will respond to this. And so I, I definitely want to I definitely want to track the metadata, especially on essay number two. And just I like to report after the essays are all graded. Um, what does the class as a whole feel on this yeah. issue? And I'd like to come back to that. Yeah, so we'll report on that in a future episode of the 252. We should mention now, and we'll say it again in the next segment, we're not going to have a podcast next week. You're just going to be working on these essays, and then we'll kind of ease our way into the third quarter by having a short assignment into that weekend about uh, the Olympics. But for now, just be thinking about this midterm exam. You have to turn this in by the end of the day on Wednesday, April 15th, students. Uh, you can find all the details on Moodle and the Dropbox where you should upload your, your finished document. Okay, and listeners, we'd love to hear what you think about all of this, uh, whether here or maybe you want to hear what the students say and then respond. But that's, again, a place where you can uh, write to us at our email address for Channel 3900. Okay, we'll be back in just a moment to wrap up with three more to see. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. All right, we're back to wrap up this week's pre-Easter episode of the 252 with three to see. Uh, once again, if you're newer to our recent version of this podcast, we have no sports on TV to recommend you watch for us. So instead, it frees us to talk about some other kinds of things to see, to read, to watch, whatever it is. Chris Moore, got us started. With most major sports on hiatus, we find ourselves grasping at straws for televised competition. Thus, our nation turns its lonely eyes to who wants to be a millionaire. Yes. <laughs> The Venerable Game Show that debuted in 1999 returns next week with Jimmy Kimmel hosting. Celebrities will be the contestants, and they're playing for charity in this limited-run primetime event. Is this a sport, Chris? Heck, Heck no. no. <laughs> Is it social science? Probably. Mm -hmm. Check out the 2005 paper by economists from the University of Warwick, who used the show as a natural experiment to estimate risk aversion, an mm -hmm. important concept in the field of behavioral economics. That's my final answer. We'll share that link. Have I ever told you guys that I auditioned for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? No, but I want to hear that story now. Yeah, so I mean, there was a written test that I, I did okay at, and then they invited me to the audition, which was at a car dealership in the South Metro, and I met with the producer for like two minutes, and it became pretty clear they didn't want any more college history professors on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> so that, that was, I also met Alex Trebek once, but that was in high school. That's another episode. Sam. <laughs> All right. Uh, coming up later in April is the much anticipated release of the 10 part ESPN Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I, for one, am very excited about this. But before we get all carried away and start heralding this as the best ever basketball documentary, there's something else you need to watch. Last April, on episode 9 of the 252, we did a Mount Rushmore of sports movies. One of the films that I tried to add to the mountain and failed was the 1994 documentary film Hoop Dreams. This 171-minute documentary that covers five years in the lives of Chicago high school basketball players William Gates and Arthur Agee is on my short list of the greatest documentaries of all time, be they about sports or not. It's a great doc, but in some ways, it's an even better sports movie. And for all the same reasons that we love sports stories. 
Uh, you can rent it for $2.99 on Amazon.com, and it is worth every penny. And students and listeners, Sam's a pretty discriminating documentary con yeah. consumers. This is high praise if he's saying this about Hoop Dreams. All right, I'll close with something different. One of the most remarkable projects on the internet is Google Arts and Culture. This used to be called the Google Cultural Institute. But Google Arts and Culture shares thousands of digital stories, images, artifacts, online exhibits, and virtual tours from hundreds of museums, archives, libraries, historical sites, and other partners around the world. My kids have been visiting this. They just went to the British Museum uh, last week. Among the many topics you can explore at arts and culture is sports. You can, for example, visit the Olympic Museum in Lausanne, Lausanne, Switzerland, the Football Museum in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. You can walk around the Melbourne Cricket Ground in Australia or the ancient Mayan ball courts of Chichnitsa and so much more. It's a lot of fun. And so if you want to take a different sort of encounter with the history of sports and the, the present day of sports, go to Google Arts and Culture. So we're, we'll share all those links uh, on the show page that we do at my blog, The Pie to Schoolman. Students will put them on Moodle if you want to get there. Uh, guys, we've been doing a lot of these. I think this is a pretty good episode of the 252. What do you say? Hey, hi. It's, go ahead, Sam. It's high quality, yeah. High quality. <laughs> high quality until I walked over Sam right there. That took us down by a notch. Sorry. <laughs> I, I can't actually literally pat you guys in the back, so I'm just going to do it virtually right there. Aww, so thanks, good man. job on that. Chris, do you want to wrap us up? Yeah, on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you can always get a hold of us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Uh, we'll be back in your podcast feed in a couple of weeks with this episode, with this, with this podcast, but you can always listen to other episodes of other podcasts before now and then. Until that time, go Royals. <laughs>